everybody, another episode of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I am Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of motorsportsanalytics.com. And David, episode seven. We always kind of name a driver with, with the, the number of the episode. Being a 90s child that I am, number seven for me just screams Jeff Bodine. Jeff Bodine and that Exide ride, of the Hoosier tires. Jeff Bodine, early 90s. That's what I think of when I think of the number seven. Oh, boy. A lot of people really thought we were going to go Kawiki there. They did. You know they did. Uh, know, but listen, but but no, th- this is this is why I know uh, that you are a good co-host uh, for this particular <laughs> podcast. That Jeff Bodine team, uh, Bodine purchased the team that was owned by Alan Kawiki after Alan Kawiki passed away. But this team... And specifically, crew chief Paul Andrews uh, were so integral into something that we see every race now. They were faced with a dilemma during the 1996 season. They were approaching the Watkins Glen Road Course race. Bodine, famously from nearby Shemung, New York, uh, of course wanted to do well in front of his uh, home fans. The problem, though, was that he was a below-average road course racer. So Andrews devised a strategy. He would turn the race upside down, pitting so early in initial fuel windows that during the entire final run of the race, they didn't have to pit, whereas other teams did. And this was effectively short pitting, which means Bodine, Andrews, and this number seven team popularized what is aggressive pit strategy in the modern day. Alan, one of these days, you are going to be asked to be on the NASCAR Hall of Fame voting panel. I feel it. <laughs> the The Wood Brothers invented uh, essentially the, the modern pit stop. It was uh, revolutionized somewhat by Ray Evernham. All of those gentlemen are in the hall already. Paul Andrews was a championship winning crew chief with Alan Kowicki and brought short pitting to the forefront. Alan, in your eyes, is he worthy of a Hall of Fame selection? Uh, well, I needed a little time to process this because I just learned something, and I hope a lot of our listeners just did too. That That is interesting. And I, I, when you compare the criteria of revolutionizing uh, something that is the norm, if you will, and turning it on its head and creating something still used today, and you factor in championships and wins, uh, yeah, absolutely. It sounds like he should be Hall of Fame worthy. So uh, I like where you went with that. I think we need to celebrate the innovators. It's one thing to to do it well, but just to come up with something like that out of the blue, to just flip the race on its head like they did in 1996. I mean, we, we need to pay some proper uh, homage to Paul Andrews. At the very least, please, can we get with Winston Kelly and create some some sort of exhibit? Can we have like a glass case with Paul Andrews's uh, uh, crew shirt? I, I don't know, but... What a contribution that that team had. And when we think of the 90s, maybe there's another uh, uh, driver of the number seven that we think about first. (laughs) But this one was truly pivotal to the NASCAR that we see now. Uh, In my only Jeff Bodine story I will share is that a, a big moment in my life being an only child and not understanding how family relationships and brothers work. Brett Bodine took his brother out at the inaugural Brickyard 400. 
Jeff Bodine should have won the race. Instead, Jeff Gordon went on to win the race, springboarded him into the heights that he would no doubt have achieved otherwise. But still, Brett Bodine took out his brother. I did a big story on it a few years ago. If you ever want to see it, just hit me up on Twitter. But David, let me just tell you, as a young person, I think I must have been 11 years old, it changed my life forever. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> Wasn't that dispute over like merchandise money, really? And they just took it out on the racetrack? There was a whole thing that no one really agrees on. They ended up going on Oprah. It was, I mean, it, 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 there's a lot of history there. And it's one of the, my favorite stories that I ever did is sitting them down and Brett Bodine fully admitting what he did, one of you know, the worst decision of his life. And uh, they say they're better brothers for it. So I guess it all worked out in the end in a way. But the, the, the Bodines were nothing if not entertaining. Absolutely. Uh, another story for another day. Let's get to why we are here today on Positive Regression, because this is what our listeners ask for. And we are about to deliver, David. This is the prospect episode of Positive Regression. The, uh, the list of, we're not going to go through all 60, but you've made a list of the 60 top prospects for potential cup rides one day. And I think this is something we see in other sports. I, I think they just had a thousand hours of NFL combine <laughs> coverage over the weekend. And you just think about every other sport has these, these lists and you know who you would draft, who the rising young stars are. And when it comes to NASCAR, I feel a lot, you know, it, it's more of that head in the heart game. We, we, we think about it from the heart, like, oh, that young kid's got what it takes. Maybe he, should, he deserves a cup ride. No, he deserves a cup ride. David, you've put your talents to work. And we have the definitive list coming up. Uh, we well, I, d- definitive. I don't know. <laughs> it is certainly a list uh, and a laborious one at that. But um, uh, look, I mean, uh, why why do this list in the first place? Uh, really, for the reasons that you just explained. Uh, to me, I think there is a, a human fascination, a curiosity in the next big thing in learning what that might be. Uh, You mentioned the NFL Combine. It was actually last year's NFL draft. The television ratings were staggering. Uh, 5.5 million viewers watching at any given time over a three-day period. And there wasn't a ball thrown. There wasn't a tackle made. That's that's just the the popularity uh, mixed with curiosity. Equally, there's a willingness to jump on bandwagons early especially if you're a racing fan. I think for uh, for many NASCAR fans, one of the reasons they enjoy going to maybe their local short tracks or, or taking in a regional series race is they want to get acquainted with the up-and-coming talent before that talent goes mainstream. There's, a, there's an indie rock quality to it. I enjoy that. I, that, that was sort of the, the, that was the same fascination. Um, that not only got me into doing this as a hobby, but led to this being my job. And as weird as it sounds, uh, kind of a way of life uh, for me and how I structure my my day to day. Yeah. For people that don't know, yes, that is your job. And you have been doing this for a few years now, correct? Making this prospect list? <laughs> uh, I've actually been employed to scout uh, for driver representation agencies in some form or fashion since 2006. And even prior to that, 
I operated a blog out of my college dorm room that covered NASCAR prospects. I actually had uh, parents of drivers mailing me videos and DVDs to watch their sons and daughters competing on their local tracks. It was it was a lot of fun. It was a bit weird uh, for for other people, but for look for an introvert like me, ordering pizza, and knocking out a few late model races made for a good night in college. But I was a scout uh, before ever dabbling in statistics, and I did the latter to enhance the former. When I did, I combined the two. The result is a list like the one posted now, which is a lot of analysis, a lot of reasoning, and a lot of statistics for why we should consider some drivers above others as elite NASCAR Cup Series prospects. And David, you're not the only expert we will hear from today on positive aggression. Later on in this episode, Chris Mitchell of Motorsports Analytics will join us with a different twist on who we should look at toward the future. So stay tuned for that. But right now, let's get to your prospect list. The number one prospect on your list this year for a potential cup ride, probably not a surprise, Christopher Bell. David, why is Christopher Bell the number one prospect in the sport right now? Mm, he's really good. He's really fast. Uh, <laughs> short answer. Uh, no, th- in terms of production, uh, and I'm going to go by production rating over average, uh, which is a look at his production versus those of a similar age. He ranked first among all drivers not already in the NASCAR Cup Series. So right off the bat, it seems like a logical choice. But he's not just a guy that gets results. Uh, there is a there's a flair, there is an artistry, and there is an efficiency in how he goes about winning races. For instance, just in 2018, his Joe Gibbs racing car probably expected to do ve- uh, very well every weekend. Uh, its expected pass differential for the season was 81 positions in its favor. Uh, Chris Bell and the number 20 car got 240 positions in their favor. So a surplus of 159 positions out of every single driver in the Xfinity series. And this includes the cup series interlopers. Bell was the only driver to rank in the top 10 on all five measurable track types for surplus passing value. So uh, not only an efficient driver, but certainly a versatile one, also an above average restarter, which in the stage racing era and for the foreseeable future uh, is going to be a value to any team that places him in their race car. Is there any weakness to him? Oh, yes, there is. Uh, He crashes, crashes a lot, actually. Um, His crash frequency of 0.53 was uh, a top five, well, actually a bottom five rate, but that's only a problem until it's actually a problem, right? As long as he is winning races and doing the things that we have come to know as Chris Bell things, there's going to be a certain forgiveness, a certain allowance that Joe Gibbs Racing will allow him. Uh, There were 17 races on non-drafting ovals, in which Bell didn't crash at all in 2018. And in that sample, he scored six of his seven wins and averaged a finish of third, 
which was over eight positions better than his year-long average finish of 11.1. Again, I mean, just on, on his good days, he is exceptional. The bad days are bad. And that's something that, A, naturally irons out as he gets older and into the Cup Series, and B, something that he can continue to work on. He's so good going 90% that maybe that needs to be his his running rate. He doesn't need to go 100% all the time uh, and put himself in these bad situations. But again, it just goes to show how good he is on his best day that that really seemingly didn't even matter to the grand scheme. Seven wins in 2018. I know I have debunked wins as being a method of evaluation, but you don't fall backwards into seven wins in one season. And Bell is an astounding talent. And even even recently, we can point to his win at the Atlanta Motor Speedway. In a race like that, on a surface that busted up, to see him do what he was able to do, pretty impressive. Uh, he's He is ready for the next level. I'm eager to see when he can get there. I think that's one of the big questions, though. And that's the question I'm going to throw at you, man. You are great at analysis, but let me throw a hypothetical GM question. Pretend you're JGR. Pretend you're Toyota. What do you do with him in 2020? It seems like all the rides are filled. Uh, if you're playing the musical chairs, uh, Kyle Busch just resigned. Danny Hamlin uh, won the Daytona 500. He seems well and good. You have Martin Truex Jr., a recent champion, and young Eric Jones, who you've sung the praises of. What do you do with Christopher Bell? Well, I guess that depends on if if you are with Joe Gibbs Racing or if you are with Toyota. Uh, because Alan, I mean, the, can consider we're sort of in uncharted territory in regards to Bell's development. If we can run some some quick math, uh, make some conservative estimates. If a full year in Truck Series costs about three and a half million, he was in the Truck Series uh, for two years, so that's seven million. Uh, and this is now his second year in the Xfinity series, which I think we can conservatively say is eight million a year. That's twenty-three million dollars over the last four years, paid for or created by Toyota for Chris Bell's development. By my estimate, even with that number, I, I will almost guarantee that I'm lowballing it. But even that number would make him the most expensive development driver in NASCAR history. He needs to be in the Cup Series starting in 2020, if only to begin his return on that big investment. I'm going to throw it back to you, Alan. This is, (laughs) no, no, this this is a hypothetical I think you need to consider. How many wins does he need to return a $23 million investment, even if he wins 23 times in the Cup Series, and that's what we would consider a good career, that's a million dollars per win without even factoring in the cost of his Cup Series, right? And and let me throw another hypothetical at you while I'm at it. Who, who would you rather be? Would you rather be a young Joey Logano with, with nothing but word of mouth hype? Um, and if we remember Logano's development and ascension to the Cup Series, it was pretty rapid. I mean, it, he he was able, just by the nature of how quickly he rose, he was able to save m- money on his on his development. Um, or would you rather be Bell with a quantifiable value 
placed on your head and the promise that if you don't make it, you are essentially a sunk cost. I'd rather be Bell at the moment, I think. Uh, I don't know. Well, because I know how Joey Logano, what happened with him. And look, it all turned out fine. And uh, he's a cup champion right now. But it just seemed, look, Bell's out there winning races and the world is his oyster. And they're just waiting for to deliver a deal to him. And uh, he's probably mad he's not in cup at the moment. But, you know, you got to trust. And uh, so I would take the Bell deal. And I think there's there's something fascinating, and, and he probably is a driver that you would take this kind of bet on. But if Christopher Bell, for whatever reason, didn't hack it in the Cup Series, Toyota probably does not repeat this exercise again. Whereas somebody like a Joey Logano that rose quickly, and 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 really the, all the hype was around him was word of mouth because the investment wasn't large relative to what we're talking about nowadays. You probably would repeat if you if you failed on Logano, you just find somebody else and do the same thing because it's seemingly cost effective. But Bell, we're, we're sort of at a pivot point for the future of driver development. If it works, we might see Toyota. We might see. Ford and Chevrolet and maybe new manufacturers entering the sport down the road, understanding that if they want a driver as good as Chris Bell, they're going to have to make an investment similar to what Toyota did for Chris Bell. Um, I think it's all fascinating. Uh, there, there are a lot of moving parts, and there are certainly a lot of things to ponder. Really, it really is. So Christopher Bell, the number one prospect for getting a cup ride. Uh, let's move on to number two. Number two on the list this year. John Hunter Nemechek. David, this one kind of surprised me. I, I don't know. I'm trying to think about why it surprised me. I, I like John Hunter Nemechek. I, I've always liked, you know, again, I'm coming from the uh, the non-analytical side, but I, I just like what he's done on the track. You know, the backstory, the, the small family team, the doing more with seemingly less equipment and still going out there and being aggressive and winning races. Uh, that That's the the non-scientific or analytical analysis for me, if you will. Uh, I've always liked him, but it surprised me to see him as the number two prospect for a cup ride. Uh, Where do you get this? Well, his first Xfinity series season uh, resulted in a peer uh, roughly 900 points better than expected from a 21-year-old driver. For me, what I like about Nemechek are his peripherals. Uh, I would want to know that even if I didn't have a car that was up to snuff on a certain day, that my driver would have an ability to go out and get me track position. And that's exactly what John Hunter Nemechek did on mile tracks and moderate intermediates in both Xfinity and trucks. He raced 18 races apiece uh, in both last year. Uh, combined, uh, he got a surplus pass differential of plus 130. He was good on long runs. He was good on short runs. He was the second best restarter in the truck series from the non-preferred groove, and that's a trait that travels up the development ladder. Uh, He was a top six preferred groove restarter in both Xfinity and trucks. There's a lot to like about him, but I think the thing that I like the most is his dependability. Even if he just, for whatever reason, doesn't have a good race car in a given race, I know he's going to be particularly feisty. I've I've seen him rub some folks the wrong way in the past on the racetrack, but this is a track position world. And Nemechek has the capability of going out and getting it regardless of the horsepower underneath his hood. 
And this is where racing can be particularly frustrating because you just laid out the list of how talented and capable he is as a driver. But what we've always seen with John Hunter is that lack of backing in terms of funding and maybe support from a manufacturer like Christopher Christopher Bell gets from Toyota. Uh, that seems to hurt his potential for a cup ride. I'm talking about John Hunter Nemechek. So while he's number two on the cup prospect list, I know you don't weigh funding and backing, but may we have to wait longer to see him in a cup ride? Potentially. Uh, it might depend on uh, how long Joe can, uh, Joe Namajet can withstand uh, running some truck races <laughs> to, <laughs> to contribute to uh, the, the John Hunter fund. I don't know. Um, there are a lot of people that see his last name and assume that he's the son of a driver and there are uh, plenty of open doors for him. And I'm not sure that that's the case. The, the GMS racing deal is... A, a good stop gap for him until we can see him land somewhere that we believe more uh, believe to be a long-term home. But at the same time, um, GMS outside of the trucks, if I can be frank, hasn't really impressed. Uh, Chase Elliott really, really had to drive uh, his ass off to avoid looking mundane last year in a few Xfinity series starts. I'm not doubting that Nemechek can't also provide a good effort, but we've talked on past episodes about the importance of perception of ability versus actual ability. Nemechek isn't only going to fight uh, the notion that his funding has an end date, um, he's probably going to have a short-term battle against perception. If he's just managing eighth place, 10th place finishes, and he isn't winning races, he might actually be producing better results than some drivers in cars ahead of him on the grid uh, and, and is just losing out based on the strength of their equipment. He may not get rewarded as such. You hope that nowadays NASCAR team decision makers are able to see through that, but that's that's kind of where we are. This is not a straightforward meritocracy. There are a lot of moving parts in identifying talent. Nemechek is very good. Uh, unfortunately, I do think it's a, a sort of a, a cloudy future. I hope that it works out for the best for him. All right. That's number two, John Hunter Nemechek on the prospect list for a potential cup ride. Number three, Chandler Smith. And David, I'll admit my first, uh, my initial thought was, who is Chandler Smith? And why is he number three on this list? Now, before the short track community gets jumps down my throat, I only know, and I'm sure there's other listeners who are maybe hearing this name for the first time or only know him because he will be in a Kyle Busch uh, motorsports truck later on this year for a few races. But admittedly, I do not know much about 16-year-old Chandler Smith, especially why you would have him as the number three prospect for a potential cup ride. So David, please educate us. Chandler is special. Uh, as a 15, 16 year old uh, in nine ARCA races last year, he ranked first in peer. And uh, I know the, the talent level in ARCA fluctuates from year to year, but that is impressive if you're able to succeed at that young of an age. Um, furthermore, he did it in style. Uh, he led at least 37 laps in all but two of those races, and he won twice 
at Madison and uh, in Salem. Uh, Salem being, uh, I think, one of the the most treacherous uh, tracks for an up and coming driver. Smith might actually be the most valuable driver on this list, and. I need to be careful in explaining why there's, there's a Joey Logano quality to him that could potentially manifest. If we look at Joey Logano right now, he's 29 years old. Uh, If we consider drivers that age or a year or two younger, there is a pretty significant drop off in production ability. You you can take your pick. Is it Daniel Suarez? Is it Austin Dillon? Um, It doesn't matter. That's a big drop off. What made Logano even more valuable on top of his ability was the fact that he was a commodity among an age grouping that didn't have a lot of talent. Chandler Smith uh, will turn 17 in June. I have seen drivers age 16, age 15, and age 14. Uh, A lot can happen between now and the time they turn 18 and they're ready to tackle some of the bigger tracks in NASCAR. But based on what I've seen, I'm not uh, enthusiastic about the depth of Chandler's age group or surrounding age groups. I, I, I Not that talent can emerge. Um, I'm just not particularly enamored with it. If any team were to miss out on signing Chandler Smith, they're not just missing out on a driver that potentially is a generational talent. They're also punting on an entire age grouping. And that can be very difficult to stomach because we're coming up and the sport's just cyclical in this way, right? Every sport is one year in the NBA, Andrew Bogut is the number one pick in the draft. The next year it's LeBron James, right? So it, it talent, talent doesn't evolve equally, but there's a lot to like right now. And there's even more to like moving forward. If you consider uh, other drivers near his age. Awesome. Well, I look forward to watching him in the truck series when he makes his debut later this year, I believe at Iowa, and then a few more races after that. Uh, So we've handled the top three. You're going to skip around a little bit and move to Todd Gilliland because Todd Gilliland last year was second. And now on your list, David, he is fifth. And this uh, ranking comes just a few days after. Uh, I don't know if it factored in what we saw from Kyle Busch, but if you did not see it, after the Atlanta win, uh, his truck win, Kyle Busch, uh, he was talking about his young drivers, including Todd Gilliland, and he said, quote, Todd, we certainly have to work with him and continue to bring him up and get him filled in on what it takes to be fast at these places, the mile-and-a-half tracks. We'll hopefully get him in places because you know his career is on the line. You don't get very many chances at this, and I'm sure we'll hopefully be able to get him going better. Um, tough talk from Mr. Bush, but, uh, direct and hopefully constructive criticism. Uh, but David, we'll we'll talk about this for, I mean, valid criticism. I don't know. Uh, Todd Gilliland has not delivered yet in terms of wins. Has, does this affect or his performance last year in the truck series that have an effect on your rankings this year, moving him from second to fifth on your prospect list? Well, let let me, let me touch on Kyle's uh, comments first, because when, when I read these Sunday morning after the Saturday Atlanta race, uh, I had a feeling I'd be addressing uh, those comments on, on our podcast. To be clear, what Kyle Bush said is not a gross exaggeration. It is, however, 
a generalization that doesn't take everything into account. Drivers adjust differently to things that they experience for the first time. When you take into account what they were doing on short tracks and then what they do uh, on the big tracks of NASCAR, a lot of things change. For one, the restarts are daunting. Second, you're experiencing live pit stops for the first time, and that can be surprisingly stressful after having only short races or controlled cautions in your career to that point. Thirdly, the races themselves uh, are far longer than anything these drivers have ever seen. Uh, Consider that going from a 100-lap race on a half-mile track to a 250- or 300-mile race is either similar or, or bigger in ratio than going from a 5K to a half marathon. Wow. Um, it's good, it, that's a good perspective. It, it's a, it is a vastly different beast that not every driver is immediately prepared for. When this happens in this instance, tire wear uh, matters, and that is something new. There were six races in which his truck had top five central speed for the race. In those races, he averaged an 11.2 place finish. That's a chasm that he will have to correct. You have to perform when your car is or car or truck is capable of winning. His peer for the season was 600 points worse than the average 18-year-old truck series driver, hence the drop for me from second to fifth. But there was some silver lining. His peripheral statistics were excellent. He was a positive passer. Uh, on the whole, and an above-average restarter, he actually hit 82% retention from the preferred groove. For what it's worth, Kyle Busch's retention in the truck series last year was 77%. Uh, look, this is this was an imperfect season for Gilliland, and while I don't fault Kyle Busch for what he said in Atlanta, there are are factors that don't attribute to every young race car driver equally. Perhaps you do have to work with Todd. He was unbelievably aggressive in short run races at the local regional levels. Uh, in, in the K&N West, he won over 40% of his starts, right? He, he's, he does not lack talent. He may lack guidance, and that's an adjustment that you hope a team with the resources and brain trust like Kyle Busch Motorsports has is able to correct. Um, if not, you hope that a driver as naturally instinctive and as much of a peripheral stud as Gilliland is does not get lost in the weeds based on a very high expectation and this assertion that all young drivers are created equal uh, and learn as such. So we just heard a, a quick sampling of David's uh, prospect list, again, for cup prospects, cup rides in the future. But now I want to introduce to Positive Regression a guest, uh, Chris Mitchell, a writer who is new to motorsportsanalytics.com, formerly of the popular baseball analytics website Fangraphs. And let me just tell you, this is how I know David is secure in his research because he is not afraid to bring on another writer with another different methodology when it comes to potential prospects. And Chris, that is what you have. 
you have your own list in terms of uh, prospects and explain a little bit about how you came up with your prospects list. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so my prospect list is based on a computer-based model um, that considers a, a, a variety of factors, including driver age, uh, quality of equipment, driver performance relative to that equipment, uh, level of competition, meaning whether drivers raced in Xfinity, the truck series, ARCA, et cetera. And it essentially crunches the numbers on how important each of those inputs are. And it, and it comes to a, a conclusion about how important those factors are when it comes to predicting future success. And that can be applied to current prospects and, and it, it forecasts how they will do in the future. The metric I chose to predict was top 10s achieved between the ages of, of 24 and 28. So for each prospect, it kind of spits out a value, an expected value uh, for that metric. Yeah, I mean, again, what what we've just heard and what you're listening to are, are two different methodologies for analyzing potential uh, for success in the Cup Series. And that means we, <laughs> David and Chris, have uh, two different outcomes at times in terms of the best prospect for a Cup ride. And let's just start it off. Remember, David's you had uh, you have Christopher Bell as your number one prospect for a Cup ride. Meanwhile, Chris, number one for you is Cole Custer, which is David's number four. So there's a little disparity there. How do you, uh, what do you guys think of that? So when I look at Cole Custer, I see someone who has not only performed in Xfinity, but someone who has performed in Xfinity at a very young age. Custer was one of the top drivers in the series, despite racing all of last year at just 20 years old. So um, I think a lot of people, when evaluating a driver, your natural inclination is to compare him to the drivers he's racing. So last year, that meant comparing him to guys like Christopher Bell, Daniel Hemrick, prospects like that. But the reality is that Bell is already 24 and Hemrick is already 28. So there's a big difference between doing it at 24, 25, 28 versus 20 and 21, which is what Custer is doing right now. Because drivers, they they often get a lot better from the time they're 20 until they get to their mid-20s. Um, that's, I think David's work on, uh, uh, aging curves shows that, and I would encourage people to go and look at what Joey Logano did in his early years in, in the cup series and the same with like Kyle Busch and Kurt Busch. And it, it wasn't great. And they really made some strides and, and Custer is right at that, that, that age level in the early twenties where there's still a lot of improvement, improvement left to do, I think. So I think people maybe don't fully appreciate how um, impressive it is that he's doing what he's doing while he's he's so young. And I think that that causes him to get overlooked a little bit. Yeah, I think we're in more we're in more agreement here than we are uh, in disagreement, because some of that evolution that you mentioned is already occurring. So if you consider 2017, his adjusted pass differential for the year was minus 258. Uh, it improved. It was still a negative, but it improved to minus 102 last season. Um, but he was a plus passer on intermediates, which is the track most prevalent in NASCAR. So in that regard, he is already making those kinds of strides. Um, Alan, I take a lot of heat for things I've written about Cole Custer in the past, and I swear I don't know why. I just have this ability to to seemingly inadvertently tick people off. But if I can say one thing about Custer, um, if his strength just happens to be having raw speed and being able to thrive in clean air, we just crowned 
uh, champion in the Cup Series that did that in Logano and we saw one retire a few years ago in Carl Edwards, who is also very good and in his heyday, arguably, was one of the top three drivers in the sport. So even if you have some of those track position deficiencies, you can still succeed. Custer's young enough now that he can work on them, but it isn't so much of a detriment. Just the reason I would rather have a Christopher Bell or a John Hunter Nemechek instead of Cole Custer is because I want to know where my track position is going to come from. Um, And as we sit, if we were to put Cole Custer in uh, a car, maybe ranked 15th in central speed, things might look a little bit differently in terms of his results. All right, next up, uh, Harrison Burton. David, you have him as your number seven prospect. And Chris, this is interesting. This caught me off guard. You have Harrison Burton way down at number 20 in terms of a cup prospect. Why so low? Yeah, so with with Burton, there are two main reasons my model doesn't love him, um, or I guess I should say that doesn't love him right now. For one, he's really far away from the Cup Series uh, and still has a, a lot of developing to do from that standpoint. And second, he, he has a very tiny sample of races, so this kind of gets back to what we were talking about before with the small sample, where it's harder for him to really have a great projection just because... My model is not too sure what to make of him. He only ran those eight truck races last year, and he ran a smattering of races in ARCA and K&N, but it's not really enough to give him a super strong projection. But with any prospect that far down the ladder, there's there's always a good deal of risk attached to him, even the ones that seem really good. Uh, he still has to show that he can he can do it in a full season of the truck series, and then from there, he'll have to prove himself in Xfinity, and then... From there, hopefully get lined up and get a good cup ride and then perform in that scenario as well. So there's kind of a lot that needs to happen for him before he even makes it to the highest level. David, it is a small sample size, but when you analyze him, Harrison Burton we're talking about, I mean, you like what he does. You have him as number seven. Yeah, in that eight race sample size, he ranked ninth in pier last year in the truck series. And you know, like we said, we we kind of have to work with uh, small sample size uh, sizes more often than we'd like. Um, in that sample size, he was crash free. Uh, will he ever duplicate that? Probably never. So seventh is actually a pretty big bet. Uh, he had a very big stumble as a 15 year old uh, competing in the KNN East. He ranked last in his rookie season in that division. If you want to chalk that up to 15, just being a horrible year for uh, males in general, let alone race car drivers. We can just omit that because he's been sort of clean and free in KNN East and ARCA. Uh, he's already a winner this year in ARCA, albeit it came at Daytona, a volatile racetrack, but he had a good showing in Atlanta until the final restart. He also, and this isn't something that would be considered for his rankings, um, he has a good group around him ensuring that he's able to learn and grow. We don't always see that with up and coming drivers. Uh, Burton is a product of a family that has been in the sport a very long time. 
Um, he is a knowledgeable race car driver. He doesn't make a lot of mistakes on the racetrack, hence the the, the zero crash frequency. So it, seventh um, on my raking is, is a bet on the come. Uh, I can see where Chris uh, comes from. Um, I just, uh, I'm a little bit more rosy moving forward. Very interesting. Big disparity there, though, and uh, we we just see the different approaches that you guys have to uh, to potential cut prospects. Uh, David, I'll give you a chance. Who's the most underrated prospect on your list? And, and I don't know, maybe define underrated for me. Uh, I don't. You know, to me, I I would just think someone that isn't uh, on the top of the mind of uh, of a popular consensus, right? I mean, I think NASCAR fans kind of know Christopher Bell and Cole Custer and and John Hunter Nemechek are are good drivers, but they don't know every name uh, on on the top 60 list or in on Chris's uh list of 71, but I'm going to pick two. Uh and I'm going to have an international slant with mine. My first one is Ruben Garcia um in the KNN East series. It was Garcia and not uh, series champion Tyler Ankrum, who ranked first among series regulars in peer. Garcia drives for Rev Racing, which is uh, within the industry notoriously frugal. They have money, they just don't spend it for whatever reason. Uh, and still, Garcia managed to win two races last season, one at Memphis Motorsports Park, which NASCAR fans will remember used to be uh, on the Xfinity series schedule. And, uh, the other one was at Dover, a uh, track certainly relevant to, uh, to current conversation. In addition to that, he pocketed his second NASCAR Mexico series championship. If you're taking that series lightly, uh, please don't, uh, it is now, uh, 50, 50 ovals and road courses, uh, habits that convey at the next level are now being taught so don't discredit the racing that's going on right now uh south of the border i think eventually we're going to see a lot of talent emanate from there my second pick for this is a canadian grant quinlan uh he recently finished third in the arca race at daytona but he's he's more than just a um a a short-term arca driver he's not a slouch he's he's a champion uh, in 2015 of the CRA Super Series, a highly competitive late model series out in the West or Midwest, he scored a pair of top five finishes last year and six starts in the K&N Series. Those came at Langley Speedway and New Jersey Motorsports Park. Uh, one track and oval is flat as a parking lot and uh, the other a road course. Uh, and he won a pole at South Boston. The downside to Quinlan is that we barely ever see him race. Uh, I, I I tried to make a term uh, work a couple of years back, um, but I'm I'm going to try to bring it back now. Uh, Grant Quinlan is a leprechaun. You you rarely see him, but when you do, it is magic. And when his name appears on an entry list, uh, I smile because that's just that's another really good driver. Um, in a race that I'm about to watch. Uh, so Ruben Garcia, Grant Quinlan are my two underrated NASCAR prospects. Chris, how about you? Who's underrated, you feel? So my underrated pick is also a, a leprechaun. Um, and as of right now, at least as far as I'm aware, he does not have any a ride lined up for this year. And that's, that's Kyle Benjamin. Um, he didn't run too many races last season, but the races he did run were extremely encouraging. Uh, he, he did snag three rides in the Gibbs number 16 Xfinity car, 
um, and he recorded an average finish of eighth in those races. And that was better than Brandon Jones's average finish, but also better than Ryan Priest's average finish, Christopher Bell's average finish, and Kyle Busch's average finish in uh, in the Xfinity Series. So, so although running up front is pretty much the exception in, in that car, I'd argue that that Benjamin managed to exceed those expectations through his performance. Um, he also ran some truck races for David Gilliland, where he finished second and fifth. So pretty much every time he went out last year, he was running up towards the front. And he's also just 20 years old, so he has the age thing on his time, on his side as well. So there's still plenty of time for him to develop and get better. Um, but the issue is that he only ran six races last year, so it's a little hard to uh, be too certain about what he is at this point. And it's kind of a, a, a small sample. Well, great stuff, guys. And especially Chris, I appreciate you coming on Positive Regression. Uh, you can find Chris on Twitter. Give him a follow at underscore Chris underscore Mitchell on Twitter. And uh, what are you working on for Motorsports Analytics, Chris? Yeah, so you can find my prospect list up on Motorsports Analytics. And um, later this week, uh, you can find articles diving into some of the n- more interesting names on that list. Uh, specifically, I'll have a piece chronicling some of the uh, underrated prospects, some of the guys that we just talked about and, and more. And I'll also have one looking at the most improved prospects compared to this time last year. So be on the lookout for those. Good stuff. Good stuff today here on Positive Regression. I look forward, David, to uh, maybe in 5, 10, 15 years looking back on the prospect list and seeing just how good you guys did. So uh, it's been good. And and don't forget, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. We have all your devices covered. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review. That helps this podcast gain some visibility. Your help in spreading the word is appreciated, and we love hearing from you. So if you have any questions, We want to answer them right here on the podcast. Reach out on Twitter to me or David or send a question to at posregpod, uh, P-O-S-R-E-G pod on Twitter. Uh, David, what do you have coming up? On motorsportsanalytics.com, you can find my latest article, uh, Searching for the Next Ross Chastain, where I explore a few drivers that have raced right under our noses. That may also be uh, better than popular consensus may dictate. Uh, Also, I tentatively plan to be at Hickory Motor Speedway this weekend for their season opener, uh, twin 40 lappers for the late model stocks, as well as a limited late model feature. I'm looking forward to taking in a decent night of racing. Good stuff there. And if you are listening to this on Thursday, make sure you watch Race Hub Thursday night. I'm interviewing Eric Almarola, who is off to another good start. Think about this point last year. We were just learning kind of this identity of, of him in really good equipment and what the 10 team would be. Now they've got expectations, and he seems to be living up to them so far. So good chat with him. That will be on Race Hub. I'll post it up on Twitter. No truck race this weekend, but plenty of racing action over on Fox and FS1 out there in Phoenix. So make sure you check that out as well. And as always, thank you for listening to Positive Regression. Uh, For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. This has been Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast.
I'm Amira Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.